Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right. All right. Well, here we are back again. Here we go. Well, welcome back to Profane Faith. This is your host, Dan White Hodge. (sighs) Hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well. A lot has been going on over the last, um, well, (laughs) a lot has been going on for 400 years. (laughs) But this last week um, uh, in particular was, you know, last couple weeks have been just intense and, you know, just a lot of processing. I think you know, it feels like uh, in time we're entering some new space, um, you know, just the sheer amount of materials that we can have access to, um, the amount of abuse and racism that we're able to witness on an ongoing basis um, uh, is overwhelming for and for many folks. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important to note that as we're thinking about, um, as we're thinking about black death, right? I'm seeing a lot of stuff pop up like Sesame street has an ad now black on black lives matter, not an ad, but you know, they did a whole thing on black lives matter. I'm seeing, you know, billboards, black lives matter. I'm seeing, you know, Walmart, Amazon saying black lives matter, Uber saying black lives matter. So it's like. Um, okay. All right. Good. Systemic change, systemic change, um, and something that is sustainable because everything that black people have put out that has been for their systemic betterment, whether it be politics, education, finances, land, property has ended violently in this country. And you just got to be able to just go and do the history on that. And I think, I know for me, I'm just, I'm tired of trying to explain to white people and and then get cross-examined as to why, you know, they should believe that these things have happened. Um, You know, the shit just pisses me off, right, to to even engage in that. So, um, you know, I want systemic change that is sustainable. Um, That's not going to get taken down, burnt down um, by white folks in you know white america um and so i'm i think if i'd seen something like that you know 30 years ago i probably would have been a little bit more like okay all right maybe we got something here but you know a lot of shit happened after the 92 uprisings you know um and that for me was a turning point in my own life um and you know we had the initiative of rebuild la um, if those of you who can remember, right, it uh, was a multi-billion, I think it was like $3 billion, $4 billion uh, that was promised to 
the black community there in South Central or in particularly South Central Watts, Compton, places like that. Uh, there were other initiatives out in the Bay Area as well uh, that were saying, you know, we're promising jobs. We're going to be bringing, you know, 300, 400,000 jobs um, to the quote unquote riot zone. Um, and for me, at least in my lifetime, at that point, you know, I'm 18, 19 years old and I'm thinking, wow. Okay, this is good. We got people's attention, right? It's like, you know, even the president at that time, you know, uh, uh, George W. No, no, yeah, George Bush Sr. Uh, was even condemning the 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 actions of the LAPD, right? And I was like, huh, okay. And within six months of Rebuild LA, doors closed, no jobs came. I don't know where that you know that four billion went. I don't know if you if y'all know, you just let me know because I don't know. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, gang violence was almost to an, uh, was probably at an, uh, not probably, it was at an all time low at that point. From not, but like from May of 1992 to about the summer of 1993, right? Gangs were working together. Right. Crips and Bloods coming together saying, man, we got to fight the power instead of fighting each other. Um, you know, I mean, hip hop heads were involved. Right. You know, people like Snoop. Y'all didn't even know him as Snoop. But it was Calvin. Right. Calvin from Long Beach is coming out, you know, an up and coming rapper. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, all these things were happening. Right. You know, Tupac was was putting some shit together as well, man. You know, you had the whole thug life mantra and like there was some organization around it. And there was this energy that I can't really explain. You just had to be there. This is on the West Coast. I'm not sure what was happening on the East Coast. You East Coast uh, fam, you know, feel free to chime in as well. Um, but this was on the West Coast. This was what's happening on the West Coast. And it was a time of unprecedented excitement. But by the summer of 1993, shit had just fell apart again. Those jobs that we were promised, nothing came. Um, and, you know... Hood cats can only last for so long, right? That piece is only so long before, guess what? The shit started up again. And it's gone unchecked ever since. Um, morphed into all kind of stuff. I ain't going to get into a history of gang, you know, culture and the development of, you know, where gangs have been and come from and everything. Um, in fact, you can go out and see the movie uh, Crips and Bloods Made in America. Probably one of the best gang documentaries I've seen, you know, uh, particularly with Crips and Bloods in Los Angeles. Um but um, yeah, man. I mean, and, and so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that this shit is happening. Like that's great. But again, I want systemic change. I'm glad the money is going to Black Lives Matter. I'm looking for systemic change, change in policing, change in the way we look at how we how we interpret Black people in the media. Right? The fact that we have neo Nazis and Klan members embedded in police departments. Okay. That shit. That's what I'm looking to to, to change. All right. Um, you know, I'm I'm not looking for a kumbaya moment. I'm I'm done with kumbaya moments. We just feel good and oh, we feel this solidarity. I want to know that when I walk through the fucking white neighborhoods, that I'm not being called. The police aren't being called on me. Right. That type of shit. So when I started to see that, it's like the NFL, right? They was like, oh, we're wrong. we were wrong for the protest when saying and doing what we did. Man, bullshit. When I see fucking Kaepernick back on a team, I see y'all do away with the goddamn rules that y'all installed 
about two years ago, right? In in, in about kneeling and in protests. When I see those damn things gone and I see black ownership of teams, I may believe you. I may believe you. Until then, it's bullshit. It's rhetoric. It's something for a headline. It's something for people to get up and, and be like, oh my gosh, did you see this, right? We need more of this. You know, that type of bullshit. So, um, you know, it's difficult being an educator, right? Um, because people always want to know, right? A lot of my colleagues, you know, they're sheltered. They can, they can turn this shit off. Right? It's like I can take a break from it, but I can't turn this shit off. As soon as I walk out the goddamn door, I'm thinking, is this, you know, is this am I going to be next? So it, it it these things it's just not as easy and so I'm just I'm you know, and I get tired of having to explain it, right? Um and again, like I said last week, and hopefully you had a chance to listen to last week's episode uh with my amazing partner Emily, and uh, if you haven't go back and check it out. Uh, we just had a raw conversation, right, around this and this whole issue, right, particularly of all the religion that's met, you know, that's embedded in this. Um, the fact that you still have people calling this just a sin thing um, and that it's, you know, it's because of the fallenness of humankind. It's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm ready to push beyond some of the bullshit there. So if you're, you know, you're still listening <laughs> to Profane Faith, if you're still a subscriber and a fan, uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that you are too That you are ready to push forward um, This week uh, As you know This last week uh, You know um, Our commander in chief uh, 45 The Trumpster uh, You know actually A peaceful protest that was happening Actually had You know his state sanctioned uh, military, right? That's what I want to call it. Military, uh, take them out so that he could do a goddamn photo op with a Bible in front of a church. So I thought there is so much shit behind that. The, <laughs> the man, there's got to be some articles being written and put together. And in fact, I may even you know put one out myself because there is so much shit behind that. Just that photo op, the fact that he forcibly removed protesters. I was like, I got to bring my boy Andre Johnson back to the show. We got to have a conversation uh, about what all this means because this is, and not even what it means, but just the symbolism and and to put into perspective what this, uh, what this is actually all about because the reality of it is that there's a lot of stuff that's wrapped. When I saw that picture and at least the way he's holding the Bible, Oh my God, I was like, I got it. We got to have a conversation around that. So I brought my friend Andre Johnson back. He's been on the show several times before, and I'll put his links in the show notes, whiteoutpodcast.com. Um, and, uh, but we've never done a show just with him. He's been, he's been on with somebody else, or he's given a, you know, like an almost like an op ed on the show, but I really want to just get him and his perspective, um, to talk about, you know, this madness. Um, so he he's a good friend of mine. We actually met uh, online, and we didn't even meet in person. I think till years later, and uh, he's just a great thinker. I, what I love about Andre is that he's able to combine the richness and in, in historicity of the Black Church, along with the pragmatic and really the 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 rage of current. Um, political and and socio-political um, activism, you know, in his community. And he is someone that I, I would say, let's look to as what it looks like to live your faith out, um, you know, and to 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 put it into action. So 
I was like, I got to get this brother. And he's a damn communication theorist and expert in his field. So I was like, all right, man. This brother was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. And after graduation, he attended the University of Tennessee at Martin. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in communication. Then he graduated from Memphis Theological Seminary, where he took the Master of Divinity degree. And then he completed um, his doctorate in communication at University of Memphis. Uh, his dissertation, of which he has several books on, uh, was on the prophetic oratory of Henry McNeil Turner under the direction of uh, Michael Leff. If you don't know who Henry uh, McNeil Turner is, look him up. <laughs> it's Google. In fact, read this man's books uh, and about, you know, who he was he, uh, is, and what he did. Uh, so Dr. Johnson, he's associate professor of rhetoric and media studies in the Department of Communication and Film at the University of Memphis, where he teaches classes in African-American public address, rhetoric, race, and religion, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, media studies uh, in interracial communication, rhetoric and popular culture, and of course, hip hop studies. Yeah, he's been collecting uh, and currently connecting and editing uh, works of the AME church that Bishop uh, Henry McNeil was a part of under the title of the Literary Archive of Henry McNeil Turner. This is with Edwin Mellon Press. Now, he's already published, uh, you know, six volumes along with the seven one set for publication in 2020. Um, He's got all kind of good stuff. I'm going to put his, his link to his website uh, again in the show notes. Uh, he'll also leave some information how to get in contact with him to bring him out and all that good stuff. Um, he's presented all kind of national papers at uh, national, regional, state conferences, winning awards at each level. He's published essays in Journal of Religion, Howard Journal of Communications, Southern Communication Journal, Journal of Black Theology or Black Theology Journal, excuse me, the New York Times Journal of Contemporary Rhetoric. This brother, he's, he's doing the damn thing. But when you meet him, he's such this humble cat that he doesn't come off as like, well, I have published in the New York Times. It's like, man, this brother comes off as just the realest cat. I was like, man, I'm just glad I'm friends. My only regret is that we don't live closer to each other. So I wanted to have him on to talk about the mess and to share a little bit about what's going on. So without any further ado, again, stay safe. Do what you can to help systemic change for black lives. And uh, let's continue to push forward, y'all. Here's the conversation I had with my good friend, Dr. Andre Johnson. Check it out. I'm ready. Okay, cool. Well, folks, welcome back to uh, Profane Faith. Here we are in the midst of a crisis, a pandemic, and uh, the mm -hmm. pandemic of racism, right? Uh, that has been with mm -hmm. us for quite a while. And I had to bring, as promised, one of my good friends, Dr. Andre Johnson, the rhetorician. Um, and <laughs> Doc, welcome uh, to Profane Whoa. Faith again. Well, listen, listen, profane faith. I shouted you out this morning in All my right. sermon. Oh, in Lord. The experience. I uh, may mention that I will be uh, on, um, we will um, be recording today uh, after uh, the service this morning. And I told everybody, listen, and I tell everybody now, if you're not subscribing to profane faith, you are missing out on, oh, um, you are missing out on, 
how religion and pop culture intersects and how um, that affects not only the people involved, but us indirectly because we all are watching it and taking it in. So yeah, man, I shouted wow. you out, man. And, and so if you get uh, more subscribers, you know, I hear um, that. Payable to uh, Andre <laughs> <That's> Eason, <right. laughs> Esquire, right? Esquire. <laughs> man, I appreciate the shout out, man. Definitely, definitely, yeah, man. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. I've had you on the show a couple times, but I don't know if people know your background, like where you grew up and all that good yeah. stuff, man. So what's what's been the, the question I ask everybody, man? What's been happening from birth to now? And then we'll get into the, 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 the good sauce. Well, when I was a wee little baby, you know, <laughs> uh, just, a, uh, just a apple in my mother. Uh, no, uh, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I was born and raised here and um, um, basically went off to um, college, um, came back to Memphis, uh, began working here. And um, back in 1998, received a call into ministry, uh, went to seminary, um, finished there, took a, a year off to be dean of chapel of Memphis Theological Seminary for one year. Oh, wow. And then in 2003, found myself in a PhD program at the University uh, of Memphis, um, mm. where I studied rhetoric, rhetorical theory, and criticism. Uh, and now I do a lot of rhetorical history. Uh, and um, somewhere in between there, um, found time back in... Um, Long time ago now, 95, to uh, find Lisa and marry her and uh, <laughs> just work all the way up now uh, where I am pastoring uh, and um, as well as an associate professor of communication, uh, rhetoric and media studies at the University of Memphis, pastoring um, Gifts of Life Ministries. I've been there since 2002, so that's about roughly 18 years, and wow. um, been trying to do both, having one foot in the academy, one foot in the church for all this time, and as the Lord gives me strength to keep doing that, I will try to keep doing that. So basically, wow. that's just me. Um, I study at the intersection of rhetoric, race, and religion, and I think that is because I have a foot in the church and a foot in the academy, Yeah, and so... Um, what affects uh, members of the church? Uh, I want to talk about. I want to write about uh, because I'm. I feel that it does affect all of us in some shape, form, or fashion. So I am not necessarily a uh, person that engages in a lot of highbrow theory. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about uh, what what does it mean? And you know, when people ask me, you know, can I sum up? my research agenda in a sentence. And here's what I say. I study how the sacred is formed and articulated in the public. So that is my whole research agenda. That's my preaching. That's my teaching. That's my mm. academics. That's my community uh, organizing, my activism, my protest side, all of that. I, like I want to understand how people look at things in the public arena. I like that. I like that a lot. That's 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 really solid. And I could affirm, man. I mean, because I was 
thinking, I was like, man, we met um, online before we met in person. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. just checking you out and what you do and how you do it, I think, and I mean this, Doc, I mean, you're like one of the premier, I mean, when it comes to rhetoric and religion and understanding, like you just said, how people, you know, manufacture, how they taste religion, how they love with yeah. religion, how they interact with it. I mean, that, that's that's you. Um and you know, and you just you happen to add in some some hip hop in there, man. I mean, so you got, and now you so you've got and you got, yeah, that's right, man. And so and what what got you into this, man? Like, what I'm just curious, like, how did you end up as a professor and not just as a pastor? Because wow. and in 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 particularly, how did you make the jump from an MDiv to a degree in communication? Yeah. No, no, that's great. That's a great question. Um, when I was finishing up um, my um, MDiv. Back in 2002, one of the last classes that I uh, took at Memphis Theological Seminary was uh, a class by um, Dr. Barbara Holmes, who eventually would become dean and who would eventually become the president of United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Uh, But she was an ethics professor at the time at Memphis Theological Seminary. And she taught this wonderful class called Engaging the Powers. Mm. And basically, it was a class that um, kind of allowed us to begin to theorize as well as spiritualize what does it mean to wrestle against the powers. I mean, you know, when we talk about Ephesians 6, you know, we wrestle okay. not against flesh and blood, but about principalities and powers. What do we what do we really mean by that? So um, wonderful class. That's when I was introduced to a theologian by the name of Walter Wink. And I still mm. use his work uh, even in my own work today. Anyway, the final paper is, uh, you know, had to be turned in. And I did something uh, about um, the spirits of a church. And um, to make a long story short, it was a decent enough paper for her to call me in and ask me what um, what am I going to do when I graduate? Uh, some of the same stuff that I ask, you know, students even today. And uh, I told her, well, I don't know. I think, man, you know, I got this far. I might as well go back and get a deep man, do this, that, and other. She was the first somebody that told me that mm. I could do a PhD. Wow. She was the one that said that based on the work here, you are thinking mm. um, like you can, you know, like a PhD student, a graduate student in a PhD program would. So basically, um, she gave me something to think about. I never thought about a PhD. I never thought about an MD, okay, perfectly honest. I was introduced to all of these wonderful things in seminary. So um, when I, I knew I wanted to take a little bit of break, didn't want to go into school into the fall of 2002. But um, when I was breaking and serving as dean of chapel, um, you know, putting together those chapel services at Memphis Theological Seminary in that year from 2002 to 2003, I began to look at programs. Right at the same time, I, I knew that I wanted to do something maybe in preaching or homiletics okay. uh, because what I wanted to do was to study. If you remember back, in, back then, um, many of the religious uh, leaders of these mainline denominations, except Southern Baptists, of course, but many of them were against uh, the invasion. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They were against it, right? Yeah. Uh, but when I read, I said, oh, studies show or the research show that many of the parishioners are for it. 
So what was the disconnect? Yeah. So that's what I thought I wanted to study. I said, I want to study the disconnect. How can preachers say one thing like this and be profound and make statements and it just bypasses the congregation? So I thought homiletics were going to be my um, entryway into that. Uh, so, but the only homiletics program that was close enough was in Nashville at Vanderbilt. They had just started back fall of 2003. They had just started back their homiletics program uh, and P, um, um, yeah, PhD in homiletics. And so I said, well, I just planted the church. Uh, I'm just getting started here. I just couldn't go and spend two years at Vanderbilt. So what do I do? I just started looking online somewhere and I called uh, the University of Memphis and wow. had a PhD in communication. Wow. And I said, well, my minor was communication. Let me see what this is all about. I can still communicate. Maybe I can do organizational communication and help churches, you know, with their communication structure and stuff. Um, again, make a long story short, because I love telling this story, uh, Dan, but when I went in to talk to um, um, the director of grad studies, John Campbell, Dr. John Campbell at the time, uh-huh. Never met him, didn't know. I just he sent him an email. He set up an appointment for me to come meet him in his office. And I sat down and I told him, here's who, who I am. I have an MD. I don't even know if you would accept my master. Hmm. Do I have to come and do another master's here? Right, but right. I'm just interested in this program. He jumps out of his seat. Because he didn't know about my background. We just set up the information. I mean, we just emailed each other. Okay. He said, brother, I've been waiting on you. Wow. And what he meant by that was that prior to, for like three or four years, he had been coming, unbeknownst to me, of course, but he had been coming to the seminary, he said, um, with his business cards, trying to get anybody to listen to say, hey, I got this PhD program in rhetoric and communication. Get out. Get out. would be perfect for graduates of an MDF. Wow. And, 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 and so he made the connection. And, and, and in that office, that 15-minute meeting turned into like two or three hours. But wow. he really made me aware of the rhetorical tradition, how it was uh, so closely aligned to homiletics and so closely mm. aligned to um, preaching and the black uh, church preaching tradition. Wow. Many of the African-American orators that we know of, uh, especially in history, all were pretty much preachers or got their start in churches and, and so on and so forth. So I said, oh, okay, I think I can do this. And again, so fall 2003, I found myself um, in his rhetorical theory course. We started talking about Pythagoras and Socrates and Plato, uh, Aristotle and Isocrates and Euripides. And I'm like, what in the world did I get myself into? Right. (laughs) But then we turned to Augustine and I said, okay, I know him. Let's talk about him. And that really began my whole journey of looking at rhetoric in a whole different way as it relates to faith, as it relates to religion, uh, as it relates, then eventually, of course, as it relates to race. So rhetoric, race, and religion is what I do. And um, it all started from that chance meeting uh, with Dr. John Campbell. Who, That's a trip. Uh, 
who've been waiting on me, who's been waiting on a MDL from Memphis Theological wow. Seminary to want to come into the program. And here I am today. I never wow. forget this. Right? It, was just, it was just like almost uh, providential. That's what it I sounds can, like. I can, I can say this on profane faith. It was probably the Lord was in. <laughs> That's right. That's well, because I mean, that was going to be like really a question. It's like, how do you you know make the jump from an MDiv to a PhD? Because it's like, you know, there's folks who'll be like, oh, well, you'll have to go out and you know take these other courses and do right, this and I'm do that. Down. It's just like, man, this brother was like, man, I've been waiting on you. <laughs> because he saw and and and, it, and now John Campbell is of course retired now but he is in Washington state a licensed minister in the Episcopal Church himself. Oh wow. Because we already we know we tease him all the time say man you're nothing but a frustrated preacher the way he acts the way that he <laughs> teaches and how animated he gets and stuff. Yeah. I mean he really loves the uh rhetorical tradition and teaching that. So but what I have done um um, um, funny you should mention about that MD of two PhD. One of the things that I have done in the program, um, as you know, my first job after I finished was at Memphis Steel. I went back to Memphis Steel. Yeah. Mississippi, yeah. And I uh, stayed there for a total of seven years. Okay. Uh, where we created, along with Dean Barbara Holmes at that time, a rhetoric, uh, a sacred rhetoric, um, program wow. within, um, the catalog, and um, also, of course, African-American religious studies. So that's where the rhetoric, race, and religion part um, began to really be developed. But when I left in 2015, I came back remembering my conversation with John Campbell and my advisor by a guy by the name of Michael Leff, who is huge, big time in rhetoric. So he um, advised me and another preacher friend you may know of, or people, your listeners have heard of Frank Anthony Thomas. Frank Anthony Thomas uh, and um, myself, along with um, other preachers, eventually come out of that same program. Matter of fact, we graduated in the same time. So when he began to see that there was something about African-American religious uh, rhetoric and the rhetorical tradition Mike Lev wanted Memphis to be a place where, uh, because John Cameron has, had uh, retired by then, he wanted that to be a place where people can come to study rhetoric. And if they want to do rhetoric and religion, they could do that at Memphis. Okay. So I am just really trying to build the legacy, uh, build on the legacy of both John Campbell and Michael Lev. And so... Right now, we have um, a couple of students who have MDFs, um, but we have more students that want to now do studies in religious communications or rhetoric and religion um, right now at the University of Memphis in our PhD program. So mm. um, um, it is a place that a person can come to study that and well as a person who wants to study African-American rhetoric or African-American or race and rhetoric. It is also a place where you can do that as well too. So uh, I just wanted to shout out those two. Yeah. Mike Lowe, who has since passed away, but John Campbell, I am trying to now 
continue the legacy um, that they um, establish. And, um, and and I hope I'm doing a decent enough job. Man, well, and I'm I'm curious because and that makes sense on how you ended up with a dissertation in um, mm-hmm. Bishop um, Bishop Turner, yeah. right? Yes, yes. Um, and you're like the archiving historian. You're like the the historian on on Turner, though, right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, you know, I'll say that again. Maybe other people will start to believe it. I mean, That's I mean, right. I, I discovered Turner back in 2005. Okay. Um, in a uh, one of my pro seminar classes, as we called them um, in grad school, where. Um, the class was to help us get ready for the dissertation or the prospectus, if you will. And so I'm just combing through some speeches from um, black folk from, you know, 18, 19th, 20th century, just looking through. And I ran across um, Turner's speech in 1868, right? So okay. uh, on the eligibility of Negroes to hold seats in the Georgia legislature. That's, oh, that's wow. the, the title of the pamphlet, right? So I... Um, um, other rhetoricians have come now and shortened it to I claim the rights of a man and stuff, but it's the same speech. So basically when I began to read that, I said, wow, this man is prophetic. I mean, he was talking smack in 1868, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, I changed Negro out for African-American and changed some of the dates out and stuff. I can preach this today, you know? Right. Um, so I said, let me look, um, this man up here. See, I'm sure that's a whole lot of stuff. Because at that time, I was looking for, I knew I wanted to do prophetic rhetoric, prophetic discourse. Okay. Ron Campbell, again, who was on my committee, said that you might want to attach that to a uh, to a figure to show examples of what you mean when you yeah. say prophetic rhetoric is this. So find you a person yeah. that you can say, hey, here's an example. But I had no person as of that time. And um, I didn't want to do Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, uh, Frank Thomas eventually did uh, him. But um, I, uh, so I'm thinking Turner might be the guy. So let me just look. And then I looked and I didn't see, Dan, I didn't see too much on Turner. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I mean, Okay, so maybe I have to keep on because um, he is 19, he was a 19th century figure and most of his sermons and speeches probably were extemporaneous and probably written a whole lot. Um, I did find out that he was kind of self-taught, so he never was formally educated because of the laws back then, you know, and all of that. So I said, okay, um, ah, let me just, I'll just keep digging. Okay. And then all of a sudden, I found through a footnote something called the Christian Recorder. It okay. was a newspaper. I didn't know Christian Recorder, AME newspaper. I eventually found out. And when I looked at that thing, I'm like, oh my God, Turner wrote like he was a blogger. If he was living today, he would be a blogger. <laughs> he wrote almost every week. I'm like, oh my God, look at all this stuff. Then I started to dig even more. And I'm like, wow. There must be an archive somewhere of this stuff. So I could just go to the archive now. I'd be like a real scholar. I'm being the archive with the gloves and all. <laughs> That's right. And I'm like, wait a minute, no archive. Only piece of an archive was at Howard um, in their special collections uh, library. Okay. And it was mainly clippings, newspaper clippings of Turner. So here I am with a figure that 
I didn't think I had enough on to now when I found all this stuff, I just got too much. I got to now trim it down. Wow. But also, in the back of my mind, when I finish this dissertation, I'm going to collect all this stuff and I'm going to put it out here for people to see because Turner deserves to be as well known as Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Yeah. Washington and W.E.B. DeBose and Ida B. Wells and Francis Ellen Watkins Hopper and Sojourner Truth, all who were his contemporaries. Wow. Because he lived a long time. He lived to be 81. So um, pre-Civil War, Civil War, Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, and the turn of the 20th century when we get into um, the... Uh, when we get into the um, uh, what we call the industrial revolution and the um, gilded age, where all of the bankers and big money people start making all that type of money, so he lives in all those different ages, and he was very active writing and doing things that um, um, doing things that he needed um, to do at that time to speak for the people and with the people. So when I did all that and I found all this stuff, I said, I got to get this stuff out. And that's what I've been doing since 2005. I have wow. my, you know, a lot of times you hear the story of when you get through with your dissertation, um, um, you just kind of put it to the shelf and you start doing stuff, something else. That's not me. I am still, um, yeah. with, I've been studying Turner now since 2005. What's that? 15 years and I still got more, more work to do on here. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's what I love. That's what I love to hear, man, because that there is a rich history of black scholars, rhetoricians, and preachers, man, that just doesn't get known. The names that you listed out, I mean, a lot of folks, all they know is MLK, and all they know of MLK <laughs> is I Have a Dream, <laughs> and they think that's it, like that. That's the pinnacle. Right. That was that, um, and and I think you know it's systemically too, man. It's like the the amount of black scientists that we know of, or or you know the the folks that create things, right? It's like history books tell us that it's just the European, that it's just the white person that is able to come up with these marvelous things that take us into space and and computers and tech, man. It's just like, but right. you know, we're finding out, right? It's like, well, no, wait a minute, who wrote the code? Who helped design the the machine? And so to hear this on this side of it, that's a that's a great thing, man. I think that's that's yeah. a real beautiful thing. Um, well, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to really quickly shout out, you're talking about um, uh, unearthing these um, voices that um, that were, you know, powerful voices in the past, but nobody done any type of research. They don't, they didn't, uh, uh, or they left material and it's just been collecting dust. Uh, one of the things that um, I mentioned him earlier, uh, the Reverend Dr. Frank Anthony Thomas is doing at Christian Theological Seminary. Hmm. He, he, um, um, created the first PhD program in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric. That's exactly, they're reclaiming those voices. Okay. Uh, black preachers, uh, contemporary ones, of course, but also ones in history as well. So um, be on the lookout. The first cohort um, is, is wrapping up. The second cohort just started. You are going to see some works in the next couple of years on black preaching preachers and the black preaching tradition that is going to rock 
the world and 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 dare I even say um, shake up the establishment, so to speak, because this is going to be some good stuff that we need. Um, we need in our um, scholarship, especially yes. in the African American oratorical tradition. Mm-hmm. No, man, and that's exactly it. I mean, I think that that we're seeing right just the the deterioration and washing away of history. Um, and really our names from history, our, our, our legacies, I mean, and you've unearthed this, this, uh, this really, this gold mine, this platinum mine, if you will, that, you know, with Turner, man. So that's amazing, man. And so now if we look at turning the contemporary, man, um, here we are 2020, a yeah. pandemic is happening with this flu. Been a good year so far, hasn't it, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You have all these memes about what 2020, you know, people thinking about 2020 and that, you know, like, um, what, uh, what's been going on, man? I think there's so much connecting with the Trump taking a picture in front of this church and, yeah. um, and the fact that he's used media. I honestly, I think he's probably one of the best presidents Thank to you. have, Utilize for folk. <laughs> he just just this simpleton. Right. Um, um, Trump is very cagey. That's yes. the word I would use. He's cagey with his media use. So please continue, oh eloquent one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I just think, man, it was damn near the stroke of genius how his team utilized social media. From 2015, from the time that he announced his running all the way to his election, uh, being elected in 2016 and building the way it was built, the way it was designed. I mean, that had everything to do with what we study in the rhetoric and what we study in how media influences what we've and he's building upon historical traditions. Right. Right. Going all the way back, even into like, what do they call it? The. um, uh, the, the birthing uh, of Obama, yeah. like what was it? The birth, birth, the birther movement. Yes, the birther movement, the exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. So, I, I, if you can touch on some of that, man, because in the you, you have this picture with him that he just—he even looks disgruntled. He doesn't even—he doesn't even look like he's holding the Bible right um, mm-hmm. in front of this church that he just moved all these peaceful protesters out in a violent means. I don't know, man. Pick any no, of that. No, no, no. You, uh, well, let's let's just talk about Trump, shall we? <laughs> I mean, and and people who are listening to this, who know me and who have heard me speak before, know what I'm about to say. I was trying to tell everybody about Trump in 2015 and 2016, especially the fall of 2016. Why do I? I say especially the fall of 2016 because that was the election year and and then that fall I was teaching a course called rhetoric and civic controversy there you go the controversy that we studied was the 2016 presidential election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and the class myself the class and 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 uh, others who like guest speakers or whatever that come in or or, or or what have you we began to look at, seriously, the rhetoric of both candidates, looking at text speeches as well as the uh, audios, because Trump, we discovered, didn't have a whole lot of text. You had to transcribe them right. because Trump goes off the cuff or extemporaneous right. in his um, um, uh, campaign stump speeches. So we're looking at that. And all of a sudden, almost, it was, it was like, you know, 
in the beginning, it was a joke. It was funny. But when we, about four or five weeks in, right, the class, and I'm I'm trying to get them there because I, I, you know, I prepped for the class and I'm like, oh my God, Trump is, is hidden here. He's connecting. You're talking about some old traditions he's connecting on. Yeah. It is grounded in white supremacy. It is grounded in anti-blackness. We understand that. But out of that is a fundamental understanding of religion. Mm-hmm. That's why, why even, I was telling people in 2015, 2016, and they could tell you that, and they even wrote a, a book chapter about it, how he courted African-Americans within that framework as well, talking about religious freedom. But it was a white evangelical understanding. And the reason why a lot of people missed it is because, first of all, back then, we were still giving white evangelicalism the benefit of the doubt. We were saying these were the folk that were uh, the righteous uh, folk that they are going to do the right thing. And I re- God, I remember people writing op-ed pieces like the white evangelicals are not going to go for someone uh, twice divorced, somebody cheating on his wife, somebody that that says all this crass uh, uh, language and, and, and do all these bad and horrible things. Surely they would not go because they have always said that, 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 uh, uh, um, um, personality or character, that's the character. Word. Yeah. Character yeah. Mattered. They always thought that. And I'm like, you know, they haven't, they had all, listen, you got to go deeper and yes. the deep, uh, hooks that Trump was dealing with was religion was white supremacy that is um, um, grounded in anti-blackness. And and what I mean by anti-blackness, I'm just talking about anything that is not white. Right, right. uh, And and, and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and and we're seeing it now, a lot of sexism. But if we look at white evangelicalism, they have no problem with sexism because within their own theological understanding, uh, women are subordinate. So I mean, so when Trump is doing this, people were, hey, and how many times did we read over and over again after he won the social anxiety of the middle class? Right. They were worrying about their job. They were not racist. Not all the people were racist. and And now here it is, 2020, and everybody's now like, you know, um, you know, how far would he... And there's no holding him accountable at all. So, no, Dan, it did not surprise me that he was going to um, pimp out religion at least one more time by going to take a photo op um, after literally declaring war on protesters. Uh, Now I'm getting ready to walk to this place, take my photo op, and I'm going to just walk on back to the White House. So how do I get the photo yeah. up? I got to get rid of all of the people that's blocking the way so I can go and do my photo op and show the power of not only myself, but also by extension, the power of the presidency and how it can be shaped and manipulated. I mean, I, I tease my, my my fellow uh, rhetoricians that study presidential rhetoric. I laugh and I say, look, all your presidential rhetoric is thrown out now because yeah. Trump is not following any None. Uh, kind of genre uh, that you it. have studied. 
we're going to have new stuff yes. after Trump. Uh, uh, but, but, but he's shaping or reshaping the presidency. Um, yes. In a way that if another president uh, follows suit, and start to do stuff like this. The presidency that we, the, the presidency that we have thought of and conceived and known for all of our life, have been um, uh, would be profoundly reshaped, probably for the rest of our lives and probably for the rest of our children's lives. Yes. Um, so this is Trump. The Trump. Trump has always, and you know what? If you listen to him enough, Trump tells you exactly what he's going to do, and he does it. I know we like to say Trump lies. So sure he does. He lies about a whole lot of stuff. But if you listen to what he's telling the truth on, like, I want to cut Obamacare. Right. I want to cut Social Security. I want to do this, that, and that. He tries to go after that because he wants to be able to say that I am a man of my word, at least in this area. And, <laughs> and, and that's going to show right. my religious feel. And then as long as he got uh, folk... Um, that's, you know, supporting him and um, propping him up like Falwell Jr. and Jeffers and um, uh, Franklin Graham's of the world, um, he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right as long as he can keep those. And that's what he's running on. He's running on suppression of people who are not going to vote for him. Trump is telling us, Last talk, because yeah, I could just talk about this forever. And I wish I had more time to write about this. But Trump is literally telling us that, that I could care less about you. Yeah. I am, I am running for these 35 to 40, most 40% of the people who are going to support me. I'm going to get them out to the polls. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to do whatever I need to do for them. And I am going to suppress all kinds of opposition to me and hope and pray that you don't come to the poll or are able to come to the poll. Right. And if you don't come, as he said in 2016, he looked dead in the camera and said, I want to thank the African-American voters and I want to thank everybody who didn't vote because by not voting, right. you said that Trump was okay if he wins. So thank you. I mean, <laughs> it was clockwork and it almost to a T because and this is the thing a lot of people don't know, man. It was like the night that Obama was elected. So so that yeah. that same night, they were mourning. But the very next day, bruh. Come on. The GOP Morning, folks, bro. man. And I'm talking about cats like Prager. Uh-huh. I'm talking about cats that have run right-wing radio, that have created a yeah. lot of these myths, right, or, or, around. I mean, you got to remember, I mean, Rush Limbaugh was a failed disc jockey, right? Who yeah. leaned into racism and hate and it blew yeah. up. Just yeah. blew up, right? <laughs> and yeah. these cats were all yeah. meeting Newt Gingrich, right? All these cats were meeting about yeah. how they were going to take the presidency. And this is all on frontline, by the way, too. People don't mm-hmm. people don't oh, realize yeah, that. I'm not, I'm not making any of this stuff up. This, this stuff isn't even hidden in some archive. This was frontline. Yeah. And this was, and they were even talking about like, look, we're not even talking about 2012, baby. But everything you just got through saying, Trump is reshaping the narrative of how we look at polling, how we yep. how we look at uh, conventions, right. how we understand these numbers, right? Because none of the polls, right, added up. Because people are like, oh man, ain't no way he's gonna win. The right. polls, right? You know, it's like, you know, you got somebody who was it? Uh, 
who was it? Uh, what was his name? Ross Perot, who yeah. who ended his presidential campaign when he said "you people" right back in the nineties yeah, and right, stuff. Right, right, right. I remember that. Trump leaned into that mess and went way beyond. Makes you people look like, you know, you just like said shit on the air. Like, well, so what? I mean, this is prime time, right? This is nothing. Um, and so the fact that you have this build up, the way he's built up on dog whistles and the way he said all these type of nonverbal things. I mean, the fact that he calls Charlottesville. There's nice people on on both sides. I'm like, right. what? Come on, come on. So all of that, all of that. that. I mean, that is, I mean, so first of all, you don't expect the president to do that, you know, so, and you don't expect the presidential candidate to run that type of race. But, but here's what I try to get people to understand when they, but he's not going to win this time. That same thing you said in 2016. Right. Right. And, and, and then look at the polls. If one more person quote me a national poll, I'm just going to scream and I'm just going to say, man, get out of my face with that. Because national (laughs) polls and presidential election means nothing. Oh, how do I know that? 2016, Clinton was in every national poll and won the vote. Yeah, so the national poll was right. But who's the president? Who is making Supreme Court nomination? Who is appointing judges? Who who just uh, sent out the National Guard and federal troops to tear gas and and and, and pepper spray protesters? See, this is this is the stuff that we're gonna have to be. We don't have to just rearrange our whole thinking. Right. We know what this thing is gonna be. Trump is aiming at those five or six states that he needs to hold on to in order to win re-election. Give me the polls in there. And then on top of that, Trump, when you tell Trump, well, he, you down in this poll, you need to change your rhetoric. Trump is going to look at you like you're crazy right. because that's the same thing you told me in 2016 and right. I didn't do it. I'm the president now. Trump tells you in his speeches <laughs> that I'm the president now. Right. I guess I, I, guess I was okay. They, uh, I, I'm the president uh, for the first two or three months of his presidency, maybe even for the first year, he was showing people the map that he won. Like, I'm the president. I won. So whatever you're going to tell me right. that's going to help me, you don't know Jack. And now Trump has got all his sycophants in position. There is no 25th Amendment proposal now because everybody that's working with Trump and for Trump is working with and for Trump. They support Trump. And that's the other thing that we're going to have to get out of. Stop expecting Republicans or anybody else to go against Trump. You're going to every now and then, Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski or something, will say (laughs) something. But going against and to be against, you can forget that because they benefit from supporting Trump. Yes. They are not going to do it. So, so the only answer is a robust, robust <laughs> uh, turnout, record turnout like never before. Right. But just believe this. The courts are already stacked on his side. Absolutely. And if anything is going to the courts. Right. 
you probably are not going to get a favorable response. Exactly. Because that's the whole game in a nutshell. That's why Mitch McConnell is still doing what he's doing. That's why he's playing the game along with Trump. Don't let him fool you either. So all of this is together. And it is bringing it back to faith. It is grounded in a belief yes. that Trump is a called person of God. And, 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 and let's, let's look at that narrative a little bit. Let's look at the rhetoric of it. Nobody in the world would have thought Trump would have won. Trump had never won and never ran for office before. Right. He never, never been elected. Um, he was a pseudo successful businessman. So right. He wasn't. I don't know about that. Um, he got all of this baggage. He didn't show his tax returns. He didn't do like other presidents do. And God still saw a way. That's it. To make that president. There it is. Oh, you know I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> and, and, and guess what? If that happened to your particular candidate and right. you are a person of faith, you may have been saying the same thing too. So I'm trying to get people uh, uh, on my side or, or on, on the uh, side of faith that I'm on to understand that rhetoric yeah. as well too. That that yeah. through it all, through all of the jokes and the laughter, that man still was called by God to lead this nation in such a time as this, and that's what they honestly believe. And yes. and there are not, and there's no shaking that unless you start to shake the foundation of the faith, which. Quite frankly, you don't have time to do in a presidential election. No. With five more no. months ago, um, you're talking about a lifetime of work in five months, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> a lifetime of work in five <laughs> months. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, I mean, everything you just got through saying, man, this is what I've trying to been shouting from the rooftops, man, since yeah. really since 2016, man. And it's like I and and we see. Right. And this is the stuff that a lot of scholars were saying is like evangelicalism, at least conservative evangelicalism is a front. Right. For a lot of racism, a lot of hate. And that given the right context, they will throw away the values and morals and, and um, you know, that they've built all these things up on, right? It's like, you know, and sure enough, here comes a Trump. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, he's not my spiritual leader. He's just the leader of the, you know, it's like they got all wow. these excuses now. On top of that, well, what the fact that he's been married, you know, several times. He's dating. He went. He had an extramarital affair with a porn star that you <laughs> that you swear is the worst thing on earth, right? Oh, Next wow. to Obama, and it's like, no, no, no. He's he's he. No, no, no. He it wasn't that bad, you know. It wasn't. Ooh, yeah. it, you know, he he just. You know, everybody's allowed to be a mistake. I think on one of your tweets, <laughs> and this is what I love, man. It's like, remember how you used to give Trump the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been doing I've been doing those tweets as of late, just trying to get people to understand where where we are now, how did we get there, and how many people um didn't think it was gonna be just this bad. Um I mean, you know, do, did anybody ever do, does anybody remember the Mueller report? Oh man. Anybody remember the impeachment? I remember man, people will say, oh the Mueller, which is Mueller time, Mueller time, Mueller right. time, Mueller time. Right. Like, oh God, y'all just don't understand, please help them. Right. Um, 
uh, impeachment. Well, right thing to do, but um, um, that's kind of faded into just distant oh, memory. That's so right. So what what else can you do? Nobody's holding them accountable, and nobody's holding the GOP accountable. What? So I'm just telling people uh, based on if you don't like Trump or you think Trump is not fit to be president, then that means you can't vote for any GOP, excuse me, any GOP person uh, because um, they are not holding him account accountable and they support a lot of what he's doing as well, too. So, right. you know. You can't have it both ways. You can't right. not vote for Trump and vote for Lindsey Graham. I mean, that's that's <laughs> no, not going to work. I mean, but they are the problem. They are the problem too. So, what do you make then of this? These arguments uh, in another mm-hmm. realm: blacks for Trump, right? Uh, yeah. Talking about prison reform that the Democrats yeah. couldn't do. People, blacks have been following yeah. for liberal, um, the brainwashing of liberal um, media. Um, yeah. You've got people like Candace Owens that are out there stumping yeah. for Trump as well, um, saying that he, you know, it has to be him who leads us. And, you know, Trump, and I've been trying to figure out this numbers too that, you know, because Trump has built up and said, oh, the lowest unemployment for black Americans has been under my presidency you know, blacks have essentially succeeded the best under my presidency. How do you, how do you, man, how do you analyze and process some of those, you know, some of those, uh, that commentary there? Yeah. No, no. And, 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 the, and the paper that I did, uh, uh, where book chapter that I did get published when I talked about Trump, race and Trump, race, Trump and the African-American vote, you know, I think I titled it, what do you have to lose? Race, Trump and the African-American vote. Um, <laughs> african his his Trump knew going in that he would never get a majority of African Americans. So all he needed to do was get a large enough percentage to take away from the Democratic Party or to suppress the vote. Now we know that Russian interference and bots and all of that stuff was part of the suppression of vote because a lot of people didn't like Trump nor Clinton and elected not to vote. And there were a lot of people who were advising people to withhold your vote, to teach the Democrats a lesson and and all of that. So Trump played into that as well too. And one of the strategies that he used was religious freedom, which a lot of black evangelicals would support. And eventually once he becomes president, and can actually do something about it with pardons and and uh, conditional pardons and you know uh, stay of executions, even if he wanted to do that, and a whole lot of other stuff um, with prison reform. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so what Trump is doing is making stars. And what I mean by making stars is that he is not systematically attacking the prison industrial complex. He's highlighting a few folk and making them like, you are the star. So at the next State of the Union, I can have you there and I can talk about prison reform. Right. Yep. uh, Plan, which really does not attack prison industrial complex, we know. But for that individual... For an Alice Johnson, for instance, who's um, from Memphis, Tennessee, yeah, um, that I had a chance to meet. Um, I don't knock her for saying, "Hey, Trump, Trump, you know, I, yeah. I'm out of prison because of Trump." Right. 
right? I mean, right. you know, we reached out to Obama, he didn't do it. Trump yeah. did. <laughs> and I'm making the best out of this thing. So, look, well, I don't argue with that. I don't argue with her folk about that. I say, that's good. But as far as the larger thing, I think this is a goal. And what I think the other side doesn't do as well right. is build upon this supposed momentum. Say, okay, if you're doing it for individuals, not only are we going to do that, but we're going to just do this whole reform. We're going to look at sentencing. We're going to look at uh, other avenues that we know that we, if we change, it can be better for a whole bunch of folk. Uh, but you know, I don't, that, that is yet to be seen. So, so when black people do that, that's how, I mean, when Trump does that, this is how black people can find their way into this conversation. And you can get some foolishness like, um, uh, your boy, Reverend, uh, Scott, Daryl Scott, you know, <laughs> saying that Trump is the best thing, uh, best president for black Americans in the yes. history in yes. his lifetime. And so, and he can, you know, do things. Uh, uh, like that. Uh, but Trump, like again, is a master at the media. He knows what the media likes to bite on. Yes. He likes to antagonize the media, call them fake news, but later on would sit for a full interview right. with them. Right. And, and, and for a whole hour, just talk about a bunch of nonsense. But he knows exactly what buttons to push. And for several, for well, not several, but a few black folk, they fall uh, into that. And as I was telling a friend of that, I just hope they get what they, you know, hope to get out of it because um, um, one day um, the bill will be due. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's what's interesting to me is, you know, we talk about the bill. Um, he's masterly woven, right, all the things that, we have become as a society, and I would say really in the post 9-11 world, right, who we consider terrorists, uh, who, how we get our news, um, how we believe things uh, now that, you know, that are, I mean, think about... Um, what is it the the white conspiracy anon or or I'm, I always forget the name um white conspiracy group well it's the one where they say that there's somebody in the government who released this email and now uh anon or anon I'm, I'm, I I know somebody who's probably I know what you're about. yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's not deep state well that's uh, part of it but yes yeah, part of it yeah I know I know what you're talking about I just yeah. didn't think of it and so I mean cuz here's the thing Trump has created such an avenue of newness that I don't even think our constitution took any of this shit into, into consideration at all. Right. The fact that, you know, the presidency has been looked upon, right. As this stoic, okay, you gotta, you gotta do right. this. You have to say the right, wear the right ties. I mean, half the time this cat ain't even like buttoning up his, his two button suit, man. I mean, he's just walking out there, just all sloppy and everything. Right. And so, I'm just like, okay, we're in a new era. And this is what I've been trying to help students understand, man. And I and I wish we had a graduate program because half the time I feel like in an undergraduate communication studies program, I don't know how it is at y'all's place, man, but at least, uh -huh. you know, you're just trying to help students just get to a point where they're actually even right. contemplating what they're ingesting in their media diet, right? Uh, let exactly. alone trying to analyze it and code it and all that stuff like that. Um because so many of them come in with this one thought that, well, I, I just don't understand. Like, why are black 
people so upset and uh, you know, now you have police officers standing on somebody's neck just nonchalantly. Wow. Right? So I don't I don't know if you want to speak to some of that and just some of the violence that has occurred, especially the stuff that we can now tangibly put our hands and in, 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 in visions on. Not that it wasn't happening before. No, <laughs> right. No. Dan, I think you make a good point. The only thing I would say uh, of your earlier point about the Constitution, and you're right, Constitution has um, the the founders, framers, or whomever. Yeah, they were only limited to what they knew. How, however, I mean, they had put in place if you get a fool as the president, right, and there is something called impeachment. Yes. Impeachment only works, though, <laughs> if everybody <laughs> is on page to say that we have a fool in the White House. The Republicans were not on the page to do that. Right. You So, so that, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, so you can investigate. You got all the, 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 the co-equal branches of government would still work if the co-equal branches of government were all aligned to trying to do what's best for the country. Right. In my personal opinion, there are a group of people who could care less about this country, care less about me as a human being, if I want to make it personal. So, but... For as far as uh, the other question about, you know, beginning to help people understand, and you're talking about uh, uh, undergrads and stuff, and I hear you on that, you know, trying to introduce um, um, communication uh, and media uh, critically to people to get them to see what they're uh, uh, accepting and digesting and um, using each and every day. It is very, very hard because we're bombarded with so many different messages. It's already right. hard just to carve out a little piece and to try to do this, that, and the other. But I do believe that if we can give some uh, critical thinking tools uh, just to have, just here's your critical thinking tool to start asking why questions right. or how questions. Um, um, so, for instance, uh I was talking with someone and um, um, no, 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 I take that back. I wasn't talking. I did this on social media. I said a lot of people were um, upset, you know, protests, blah, 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 you know, and, and the businesses and stuff. And I, and, I, and I said, if I was a business owner, I would be calling my mayor's office and my city council office almost every day. Ask what are y'all what 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 are y'all gonna do to get these protesters out of the street? Because guess what? They're not just protesting because they want to be out in the street. Right. Right. So what, what what did you do? What what's so bad about our policing? They say the policing is bad. Can you tell me what's so bad about our policing? What right. have you done? What what <laughs> tell me more about these unions? What are the unions doing? I thought they were trying to keep us safe. You're not keeping us safe. And guess what? The, if you just tear gas one group, tomorrow night is going to be even more. So that doesn't work. So what are you doing? In other words, a critical thinking, a critical thinker will offer some critical engagement on why, why y'all out here at midnight? Y'all, shouldn't y'all, when y'all want to be, 
you know, somewhere else when you want to be with your friends. <laughs> right. Out, you, know, you know, doing what you do at midnight on a Friday. Why, right. are you, why are you in the street? Oh, you're in the street because of police? And, oh, I thought the police was all right. It must not be. Let me call certain people if I was a business owner, if I was, you know. So change the frame. Stop blaming the folk that are out there. Blame the folk who they are protesting against and then begin to ask these questions. And then you start getting some deeper understanding, deeper analysis. I just put up a blog post on the R3 blog real quick, uh, Rhetoric, Race, and Religion blog. I asked white people of faith how they were doing. You know, because, you know, they've been asking me and they've been asking black folk and all. I just wanted to know how white folk of faith uh, who affirm Black Lives Matter and Black Lives, how are you doing? Because when you start talking about Black Lives Matter, if you really want to know who your friends are, just stand up for Black Lives or just, you know, protest for Black Lives. You'll sure find out. So many of them uh, responded, and I put some of the responses up in the blog. But one um, just made a comment that I think is apropos to what we're talking about and 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 for the movement. Um, apology, basically, she said, I'm just apologizing for not being, uh, just getting woke to all of this. I had mm. no, I had no idea. But what happened? She keeps seeing it. Then as a pandemic, I can't go out. I don't have any sports. I don't have nothing to do. So I got to see this person get choked out by Derek Chauvin, because I keep saying his name. I don't. I, I yeah. want people to know who the gangster was, right? Right. So, exactly. Uh, you know, I don't be like the offender. Man, forget that. You know, Chauvin is his name. He's a gangster and a thug. So you take do what what you want to do with that. But um, um, she's like, you know, you you at home now. You gotta see this. You gotta see it. You keep seeing it over and over. And then you even get upset. You're like, that's wrong. And then you can leave, you can just say, oh, that's just one bad cop. You're right. Right. And then you see the other three that was there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then you start thinking, you'd be like, man, surely at least one of them would have, you know, told them to stop or try to pull them up or something. But all four, oh, okay, well, maybe those were just four bad cops. All right. Right. So then you start looking some more because you can't go outside. It's pandemic, right? You just can, you know. <laughs> right. So you, you can pray and you can do all that. And then you <laughs> turn your TV back on. And then you start seeing people on their knees, hands up, and police shooting them with rubber bullets, taking out, taking out person eye and beating them up and pepper spraying them. Well, why y'all doing that? There's a group of them. Oh, okay. Maybe they just, no, they were just on their knees. I I saw all this. Then the next day, and then the next, then all of a sudden you become woke to this because you begin to ask questions. What? You know, well, maybe they got something here. Let me see what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And, um, And never mind the fact that you should have already known this from your one or two black friends that everybody claimed they have. Right. And, um, Oh, you should have already knew this, as I said in my sermon, from Trayvon to Tamir to Rika to Renisha, uh, 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 you know, uh, all the other cases that have gone before. But, you know, you can still be blissfully ignorant like a Drew Brees, for instance. Oh, my gosh. Who first response to the question, now since, apologize, got it, but 
first, like, I don't, you know, support anybody protesting the flag or the national anthem. You mean to tell me you playing in the NFL for four years, playing with all those black folk, right. all those black folk in a predominantly or, or largely black city uh, for all these years, having conversation with people for four years. So if we say Kaepernick 2016 to now, and you still think Kaepernick was kneeling because he was protesting the flag, that you, like I put on Twitter, you just trolling us, man. You, you're not even trying. You, just, you don't even care. So what, I don't. I can't even have a real conversation with you, man. You you don't even. You mean to tell me you still think that you? And then he comes yeah. back. No, no, I'm sorry. Then he comes back and push on the president. But that let me knew right know right there. Right. That first of all, Trump's rhetoric is working because that's the rhetoric that Trump pushed. Absolutely. The rhetoric that Trump pushed for a lot of his folk and the NFL owners and some of the players, they bought into it. And four years later, somebody like a Drew Brees, somebody that's supposed to be a man of faith, somebody that does a whole lot for folk in New Orleans, somebody that, that gives a lot of money to uh, uh, um, need, needful programs and initiatives in the city of New Orleans and around the world, if he can still believe that at that particular moment, man, I mean, uh-uh. Right. I, don't, I don't know what else to say. You just, I mean, how can we begin to really have a real discussion? Exactly. So when the player's like, oh, man, God, then he finally gets it. But when did he get it? After the fact that he said it, and then when many people came after him. Now, his wife, uh, I think her name is Brittany, she did a lovely uh, uh, apology on Instagram. I just read the other day, mm-hmm. uh, all the notes and stuff. But again, she she admits we are the problem. We have been living in this bubble. And um, man, I don't know about you, Dan, but I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know about that bubble. I don't know. Uh, right. I don't know how that bubble feels. I, I don't get a chance to live in it. I cannot be woefully and willfully ignorant right. uh, when it comes to my life. Isn't I mean the the found? I guess that's one of the foundations of uh, white privilege. I guess you can just willfully say, "Hey, the kneeling is about flag and about the national anthem," and I'm against that. Exactly. With exactly. all of this going on, my God. Well, so. That is, man. I'm telling you, brother. You said it. You said it. That's that's a preaching right there, man. You you also said police are the founders of the don't snitch campaign. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The creators and founders of don't snitch campaign. <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, anybody, man, I'm telling you. Tell me I'm wrong. I am I'm telling you. Respond on this podcast. Tell me I'm wrong, and I admit that I was wrong. That's listen, right. Here's the here's the other thing about policing that I also said as well too. Let's just let, you know, um, can we stop with every most well most cops are good cops? Can we stop that narrative too? Since we're talking about rhetoric and ne- embedded narrative, can yeah. we stop that? And I know it is politically incorrect to say because you are supposed to say if you get a microphone in your face, you're supposed to say. I know that most cops are decent and hardworking. Okay, that just can't be true. Let me tell you why. <laughs> you can't, cannot be true because 
Ask any of the, quote, good cops. Everybody know a cop. I know some. Everybody know a cop. And even when you're talking to your boy or your girl, she or he a cop, you be like, man, come on, man. What's going on? You know they ain't right. Yeah, man. But, you know, uh, how come y'all don't speak up? Well, right. We don't speak up because, you know, it'll hurt our careers or or we won't get the help we need or, uh, or, or better yet, we get just pushed to the side. We won't get promotions and stuff like that. Oh, wait. But I thought most cops are good cops and good cops will want that to be known because good cops will want, you know, folk right. to tell on the bad cops so I won't get labeled a bad cop, right? Right. Right. No, man. All the silence and stuff. Oh, so, so y'all the don't snitch can right. So <laughs> all I'm just trying to say is the reason why the good cops don't come is because the good cops know that the majority of the cops, at least in their department, are not so good cops. Right. And as we that 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 just be I mean, so my whole thing now is is, is is trying to get, you know, I know um, um, what we try to do here in Memphis, we were trying to uh, reach out to some of the police officers if they ever wanted to make a statement. Mm-hmm. So if something happens, and, and, here's, and here's the thing, and we already know that this happened in Minneapolis too. When Chauvin is choking out this guy, people that did not, the police officer that did not see it, when they heard that, oh, man, David Chauvin choked out this guy and killed this guy, I guarantee you somebody said, yeah, man, he liked that. That's what he does, you know? Yes. They, they already knew about it. Yeah, 18 complaints. As, as yes. D.L. Hughes would say, you know, on oh, 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 CNN on the night, I wish I had thought of this line myself. He said, oh, the person... Uh, they got uh, that, that you can have 18 on a profession where you can have 18 complaints and still have a job is a policeman or a priest. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, well, I mean, you know, come on. I mean, yeah. So, so I mean, how do you get 18 complaints? So, Minneapolis Police Department, I know they're going out <laughs> kneeling now and they're trying to do the right thing and they fired the cops and all of this, but. Um, um, you know, I think a, a valid question is how do you get 18 complaints and be on the force? And then, brother Dan, <laughs> can we just add the then, the drum roll? Right. You are the training officer. <laughs> you talking about training me? Come on, man. <laughs> Oh. I think you going, my man, my man. I, I, I didn't do, I ain't do that. <laughs> you are a trainer. You are the trainer. <laughs> Training day. That's it. The police department. That's Come it. On, y'all. Oh my so, gosh. About faith. Bringing it back to faith now. Come you on. Know, Come I'm on. Saved. I'm saved. I'm sanctified. Feel with the Holy Ghost. Um. Uh, there is a morality question that really got to be wrestled with. Mm-hmm. There is an accountability question that got to be wrestled with. Yes. Uh, there, 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 so, so, to, so your theological foundation can have you put your knee on this man's neck and choke him out for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And, and and many people said he died like at the 603 mark. So he's dead 
for the rest of the time you got your knee on them for the other two minutes and 43 seconds. And you feel nothing. Right. You're proud. You know cameras are rolling and there's no shame. There's no, nothing kicks in you to say, you might need to stop this. Nothing kicks in. I got the handcuffs on him. It would be hard for him to fight back, even if he wanted to. I outnumber him four to one. Nothing like that kicks in. Nothing. That's a morality issue. That's a character issue. That's why it's never been a training issue with these cops. Chauvin been through every training program Minneapolis had to offer. Minneapolis Police Department had to offer. And none of that training stopped him because of what was already inside, in the heart. That's exactly that kicked in. And that's why I did tweet out that was the personification of evil. Yes. We didn't have to go to Nazi Germany, didn't have to go, uh, you know, overseas somewhere. Um, you saw on Memorial Day in 2020, you saw the personification of evil with him, hands on his hips, looking around like he was proud, like he had captured wild game on an African safari. Right, right. Very much so. Very much so. Tied up. Hands behind his back, which we now know other officers holding him down and crushing the life out of him. That's a moral issue. That's a character issue. Yes. Yes. Personification of evil. There it is, man. Oh, my gosh. Doc, I could keep talking with you about this oh, stuff, man, for hours, which is, yeah. if any of y'all don't know, and this is what we all do when we go to like AAR or some of these conferences and stuff. <laughs> um, this is this is amazing, man. I thank you for coming on the show today um, and just breaking me. us off some. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir, man. Where can folks find you, man, and, uh, and buy your books? I know you got something oh, coming yeah. out soon oh, and everything. Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, man, I do have a book or two, right? Yeah, um, a couple of them. Actually, um, which is a good time, uh, my co-author, Amanda Neal Egger, and I wrote The Struggle Over Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Um, the paperback edition is coming out this month, June the 15th. So today is the 7th. So when is the 15th? Monday? Next Monday? Yeah. So you can go ahead on... Amazon or any other place and pre-order it now. It speaks to the issues that are going on today. You will find it very helpful. Um, The struggle over Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter is where we interviewed proponents of both Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. And we asked them why and how and, you know, and got a lot of feedback. Uh, You will be very interested in that. And going back to Bishop Turner, in November, um, new book will be published with Mississippi Press. Uh, no future in this country, the prophetic pessimism of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. Mm. So coming out in November, right in time, you mentioned it earlier, right in time for AAR. There so I go. hope I have a copy or copies with me at AAR. Um, 
prophetic. We ought to set up something. I might might want to set up a uh, one of those uh, wild cat or and wild cards. Or, yeah, wild well, 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 card <laughs> or, or, or no, not not even that. Maybe an uh, unsanctioned event where we just come and deal room. That's and, right. <laughs> That's and just advertising ourselves and have people to come and and everybody with a book, we can have like a little miniature book signing or something. Yeah, it is. That's that's coming out and that can be pre-ordered right now for a wonderful, wonderful price. The paperback is um, um, at um, only thirty dollars, so you can get that now um, uh, with University of Mississippi Press or Amazon or any where where you get your books. Cool. And I will put these in the show notes, whiteoutpodcast.com. For those of you listening, if you're listening to this, like on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you may be listening, uh, uh, White Hodge Podcast, I put all the show note links to yeah. all the guests and particularly for their books and material. And this is another way, too, I think, when people are like, oh, Black Lives Matter, go buy them books, man. Go buy them <laughs> books. Go buy our materials, okay? Yeah. Give to them Patreon and stop, sites. And stop watching the help. To get you, That's uh, right. to help you understand right. the race, race, the racial dynamics of this country. Oh man! Can I say that? Right. Yes. The help please. Is not the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh man, that is the truth. All them damn movies, <laughs> man. Um, which was the other one too, man? There was another one too, man. Well, I know this driving Miss Daisy, but there was a recent one that came out oh, that was the like one it. that I didn't like is Blindside. Yeah, Blindside. There we go. Blindside. Oh my God, that was horrible. Oh. Blindside had you believing there was nothing that black folk could do. You just felt, but you just like, oh, okay, I'm a black guy. <laughs> if I'm not six eight, three hundred and fifty pounds, then I'm not. You know, if I can't play in the NFL, I can't do anything. Right, so, exactly. Anyway, Listen, don't get me talking on that. You're going to get me in trouble. Because the blind folk got connections to Memphis. They live here in Memphis. Oh, Lord have mercy. Okay, all right. I'll stop I'll stop that, man. I, I know that's, that goes rather. Oh, Lord. Well, you start talking about them 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 idols, man. You start talking about them. Uh, you get thrown in the, in the furnace, man. Please, man. They ain't living out in Germantown. I'm like, mm, no, dude. Okay. Wow. Now, Wow, well, Dad, wow. Listen, man, this was good. Yes. Thank you, man. Thank you, brother. You continue to Thank keep you. doing the great work, man, and um, blessings to you, brother. All right. Blessings to you, my friend. 